Hello, I'm Phil Farrow, Chief Meteorologist at WSBN-TV in South Florida, and this is Weather or Not. Imagine traveling to the deepest part of the ocean. What would you see? You'd survive crushing pressures with your life depending on the integrity of the submersible. This was once a purely male-dominated field. But now, we have the first African-American woman to accomplish such a feat, and she was busy testing sensitive equipment. It was our job to test that instrument uh, at full ocean depth. So we were, we were down to 10,919 uh, meters. That's a depth of almost 36,000 feet. Come aboard this special voyage with Dr. Don Wright. That's coming up next on Weather or Not. The best app from the best weather team is right here. Seven's Hurricane Tracker app. Get the latest forecast models. My Seven weather blog. And of course, Seven's cone on your phone. It's yours free from the storm station, Seven News. Imagine having metal crunching weights on your car with more being added every few blocks you travel. And that spot you're trying to get to, it's pitch black. This was just accomplished underwater by Dr. Dawn Wright, and we have her on this exclusive interview. Today we're chatting with a geographer and an oceanographer who's also a leader in the field of geographic information systems, or GIS for short, and how it can be used in the study of oceans and coastal science. And if that isn't impressive enough, she just became the first African-American woman to touch down in one of the deepest parts of the Pacific Ocean. Please help me welcome to the podcast, Dr. Don Wright. Welcome, Don. Oh, thank you so much, Phil. I'm delighted to, to be with you. First of all, I, I, I believe that the, uh, the, the first ever crude submersible uh, to go to the deepest part of the Pacific Ocean was in 1960, and it was roughly seven miles deep to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Uh, where did you and your partner, by the way, Victor Vescovo, uh, who is also an undersea explorer, where did, you, where did your mission exactly take you? To what part? Uh, we, we did go to the, to the Mariana Trench, uh, to the same place. One thing that's very interesting uh, about the Mariana Trench is that there are three uh, depressions uh, within, within that area. And those three depressions are together known as Challenger Deep. And uh, so that first submersible dive that you mentioned, I'm so glad you mentioned that, uh, in 1960 went to Challenger Deep. They, uh, Don Walsh and Jacques Picard went to the Western Pool and that's where they set the record of the, uh, the deepest dive. And that part of the ocean is the deepest part of the entire planet. Wow. Uh, Victor Vescovo and I also went to the Western Pool on, on July the 12th. Uh, I believe we went a little deeper uh, than Don Walsh and Jacques Picard. That was the first, when they went, that was the world's first depth record. Since then, the, the depth record has been set in the Eastern Pool. It's a little deeper in that Eastern Pool. But Victor and I uh, were not necessarily going for a depth record. Uh, we had a scientific mission to take uh, the world's first side scan sonar uh, to that extreme depth. 
Uh, a side scan sonar device is a device that, that maps the ocean floor at high resolution in high detail and returns for you an, Im an image that is similar to an aerial photograph. So oftentimes when you uh, hear about shipwrecks that are discovered, uh, the first indication of the shipwreck uh, is in a side scan sonar image because the side scan sonar is a, a survey instrument to help you find out what's in the area. And once you find something in the side scan sonar image, then you can send a submersible uh, with cameras or a, a robot with cameras to actually go and see that item. And normally that type of instrument uh, has not been, uh, the ability to operate that instrument has not been possible below 6,000 meters. Uh, but thanks to the work of the Canadian company Deep Ocean Search, which worked with Victor Vescovo, uh, they devised a side scan sonar instrument that was placed on our submersible. And uh, it was our job to test that instrument uh, at full ocean depth. So we were, we were down to 10,919 meters, Ooh. plus or minus six, I believe was the final, the final number. And we were able to operate that sonar and get some images of uh, one of the steep walls within a part of the Western pool that had never been visited before. So that was really awesome. <laughs> wow. Now, why is it so difficult to get imaging from the bottom of the ocean? I mean, it, it seems like we have better imaging of the moon sometimes. Why is it so difficult to get our own backyard imaged for mapping purposes? Yes, well, the, the, the moon and Venus and Mars are not water planets. Not true. The way that the, uh, the, the Earth is a water planet with 70 or 71% of our, our surface covered with water and instruments that are used to survey the land and to survey these other planets cannot see through water uh, in the same way. So this is why it has been so difficult to get maps of our own planet, the totality of our own planet, right. because we have to use a different type of energy uh, instead of electromagnetic uh, energy or light energy. We have to use sound energy in the ocean. And in fact, the side scan sonar instrument that I was talking about uh, is a, the sonar is part of that name, sound navigation and ranging. And it's through sound that we are able to, to get the mapping and the imagery uh, done that is at a level of detail that's equivalent to the land. The, uh, the trade-off is that with sonar or with this sound uh, imaging, we have to go much more slowly. So we can't just put a satellite in orbit and have the satellite scan the oceans and give us the detailed maps uh, of the ocean water and of the ocean floor, uh, because we don't have that type of instrument yet that we can put into space. So we have to do it on, uh, on the ocean and in the ocean itself. And that just takes more time. Now, when you were doing this, uh, this dive on the, uh, did you say the 12th of uh, July? Yes. Uh -huh. uh, when you, how, how does one prepare for this kind of, of adventure. I mean, it's got to not only be uh, physical, but it's got to be also a mental challenge as well. Well, for me, the preparation was uh, much more uh, physical because it had been uh, a long time since I'd been to sea. I used to go to sea on a regular basis 
uh, when I was a, a technician on a research vessel and then when I was a professor at Oregon State University and I had my own lab and was doing my own seafloor mapping projects. So, so the mental part uh, was, was very easy to get back into, but because I'd been uh, away from, from that lifestyle uh, for, for so long, and I, I now have a very different job uh, at Esri where it's more uh, research and development that is shore-based and Esri is a software company. Right. Uh, we make the tools and the services that scientists take with them when they go to sea, but we don't actually uh, go to sea and do that type of intense field work ourselves. Okay. So in order to, to prepare, uh, it was more on the, the physical uh, basis. And uh, having not been uh, on a ship for some time, uh, the pressure drop is the ship that we were on. And it's a standard, uh, it's an old uh, Navy NOAA ship that was converted to a research vessel. It has five decks that are connected by fairly steep internal and external stairwells with handrails. So uh, it, it, I worked in my upper body fitness uh, and my lower body fitness so that I could uh, navigate uh, around the ship and, and be fit enough uh, for, for life at sea. And then I worked on my flexibility uh, a bit because I'm, I'm 61. So, uh, so my knees are, everything is not as flexible as it used I'm, to I'm be. there with you. And, uh, <laughs> and getting into and out of the limiting factor, the submersible uh, takes uh, some flexibility and you have to be uh, able to be uh, in a seated position for, for 10 to 12 hours. Uh, so uh, I worked on, on that as well. And we also had to be uh, completely free of COVID. So another big part of my preparation of was just being extremely careful, uh, living somewhat of a monastic existence uh, to make sure yeah. that I didn't uh, get COVID because if I contracted COVID, uh, then the, the deal would have been off because uh, the ship uh, has to be uh, extremely, um, extremely sure. careful about that. And everyone had to be fully vaccinated. We had to be uh, tested uh, within three days of boarding the ship uh, and so forth. So uh, I, I basically did a, a lot of uh, biking because I'm a cyclist. So I did a lot of road biking and mountain biking to work on the upper and the lower body and worked out with a, a personal trainer to help with the core strength training and the flexibility. And I'm so glad that I did. <laughs> <laughs> so now, now that you've prepared physically, and I'm sure there's also a lot of mental challenges that go along with that, Give me a, uh, a, a radio-like description, if you will, of the inside of your submersible. How large, small, uh, obviously it's just a two-member crew. What was it in like, uh, inside that sub? Well, the sub is, is very cozy. It's like being in a, a very personal uh, space capsule. Uh, the instrumentation is right there uh, in front of you. They, we had three viewports so that we could see uh, and make observations around us. There was one viewport for Victor as the pilot, one viewport for me as the, the mission specialist. And then there was a third viewport that was uh, on the floor, so to speak, so that we could uh, see what was directly uh, below us. So we had good visibility to uh, either side of us and uh, on the bottom. Uh, there's also a lot of people when they see pictures of the inside of the submersible are surprised by all of the oxygen tanks that are on the, the roof uh, right above our heads. 
uh, that's uh, just the way the, the sub is designed in order to get all of the equipment in. Uh, the, the sub is an amazing uh, design because it, in terms of, of uh, the ability to explore, but also for safety, because should anything uh, go wrong in that sub, there's actually enough oxygen. Uh, there's an oxygen supply for 94 hours. So that's part of why there are so many oxygen tanks there, but we don't need to use that during, during the dive. Uh, and I had also a laptop that I had to uh, keep on my lap that was connected to the SideScan sonar instrument. Uh, okay. So I used that laptop to, to run the instrument and to, to gather that data. And it's very interesting because the SideScan sonar uh, was installed the transducers, uh, the actual instruments were on the starboard side or the okay. right side of the mm -hmm. sub, which is also the side of the sub that I was uh, sitting on. And one thing that's interesting about the limiting factor uh, with its design, uh, it looks like a large manila envelope <laughs> okay. and it, it moves uh, the, the viewports are uh, on the front uh, of the sub and it moves, it can move forward, of course. Right. But the thrusters are on either side uh, of the okay. of the uh, vehicle, so it can also move very well uh, to the side, uh, which is different from other submersibles that I've been in, such as uh, the Alvin submersible. And the Alvin uh, is our one major uh, government-funded submersible in operation right now in the U.S. And I just like to give it a, a shout out because it sure. <laughs> recently uh, became very close to getting certified for 6,500 meters depth. Uh, so that's going to help. In fact, 6,500 meters depth covers about 90% of our world ocean depth. So that's a big accomplishment for them. But Alvin uh, has more of a linear design and, and is very good at going uh, forward. Uh, at any rate, uh, and Alvin is also bigger. Uh, there are three people inside. The limiting factor, as you mentioned, only has two. Right. So everything is nice and, and cozy in there. And what we are actually sitting in is a sphere. Okay. So we're sitting inside of a, a, a ball. And that sphere uh, is to within one one hundredth uh, of an inch, I, I believe, uh, uh, I'll have to, to look up that, that number, but it's almost a, a perfect sphere. Ooh, okay. Uh, and that helps with the, with the pressure because the deeper uh, that you go in the limiting factor with its design, the safer it actually is because that, that sphere is in two halves, which are welded together. Right. And that seal uh, because of the great pressure, because uh, of the 16,000 pounds per square inch wow. that you experience at that full ocean depth, uh, mm. that actually uh, seals uh, the sphere and also seals uh, the viewports uh, even more. So everything gets compressed and uh, everything, uh, I just felt safer the deeper that we got, which is counterintuitive, I know, for a lot of people, but that's when you put your trust in, in that marvelous technology. Uh, the limiting factor, by the way, is a product of Triton submarines. And so that, that company uh, really, the, the, the story behind the making of the limiting factor is another story in and of itself. And you can find that out on YouTube. Sure. So now you're in this sphere. Uh, you have just dropped into the water. 
how soon before you lose daylight? We began to lose daylight at around, I'd say, uh, 500 to 600 meters. And in most of the world's oceans, that is the, that's about the, the level that you begin to descend into complete darkness. And it's called the twilight zone. Right. Uh, because most of us in our experience of the ocean, we're on the surface, or if you're a scuba diver, uh, you're still diving uh, within that, that depth limit. Uh, so we, we think about the ocean being this beautiful blue uh, <laughs> color. And it's not, most of the ocean is, is pitch black dark. So we, the, uh, it began to get gray around 500 meters or so. And then as we got down to around 900 meters, that's when we did see some bioluminescence, which I was really hoping for. Wow. So we saw uh, the Victor was able to flash his, uh, the lights of the sub and uh, get the creatures to flash back at us. So wow. we, we saw some, some jellies, some bioluminescent, and they're, they're bluish green, uh, some siphonophores, which are uh, worms, worm creatures. And so we saw that around 900 meters. Un, un, uh, unimaginable to me to, see, to be able to see all that stuff, not just in a movie, but to actually see it up close like you did. How long did it finally take you to reach your destination? It took about four hours to, to descend okay. that great depth, uh, which is actually going at quite a, a clip because the limiting factor with its, it, it is designed, of course, to descend uh, very quickly. It descends uh, more quickly than other submersibles because it has a longer way to go. Uh, and that descent rate is anywhere from one to three knots. Given the speed of the descent, though, uh, I didn't notice that at all. Uh, what was more striking to me was the, the dashboard that both Victor and I had. Uh, I had exactly the same dashboard as Victor, but I was not able to, to control much on my dashboard because I wasn't the pilot. But I, right. as, he, uh, as he was controlling things, uh, I could see what he was doing and I could switch to his screen and follow along. Uh, what you see on that screen to the far left is the change in depth and it just okay. kept going down and down and down very quickly. And it was, uh, it was literally an elevator ride to the bottom, but it did not feel like an elevator ride. Uh, I was, it, it, it was quiet, still, you did not have the sensation that you were descending. There was no change in pressure. A lot of people worry about that. We were completely protected in that titanium sphere uh, within the submersible. And the interesting thing is that most people will probably feel more pressure on an airplane uh, descending from at, at several hundred miles per hour sure. from the ground up to 36,000 feet. Your ears might pop or uh, you, you notice that that change. Uh, we, we don't feel that. Uh, in, in the submersible. Has anything ever surprised you on, on one of your treks? Have you ever seen anything that you went, uh, oh my goodness, that's something completely different. Has anything ever grabbed your attention like that? Well, I, most of my submersible uh, dives 
in the past had been to the hydrothermal vents, the very famous oh, yes. places with the black smokers and yeah. the tube worms. And so those places are just amazing. And there's surprises at every turn. We were headed for uh, the darkest, deepest, most hostile, desolate place <laughs> on, the, on the planet. Right. So at those extreme pressures, especially there are the, the, the biota, the, the life or the wildlife, as, as Victor calls it, is very, very rare. There, there are only a, a few kinds of creatures uh, that can withstand those, those great sure. uh, pressures. So we, we saw the expected um, deep sea anemones, uh, little white stalked creatures with, with tentacles. Uh, we saw some uh, bacteria. We saw a little amphipod float by. Uh, those are shrimp-like creatures. There is much more uh, biological action going up, going on further up uh, the trench walls, uh, a, a couple hundred meters above us. And we did have a, a lander uh, deployed there. A lander is a caged instrument uh, that has water samplers and cameras and navigational equipment. And uh, the landers are also baited with, with fish like, uh, like sardines right. to attract the amphipods to come and have a meal and then, and then get captured. Uh, they can be trapped uh, so that we can actually have them as samples or there's certainly some beautiful video footage, but we, we were not near uh, that lander, didn't see any of that. I will tell you, I was shocked because as soon as we got to the bottom, uh, on our dive, the first thing we saw was a beer bottle. We oh both my goodness believe it. Of all the things. A green beer bottle at that depth, uh, oh. which <laughs> underscores <humans>. that we, <laughs> there's no place, really no place left on earth now that is untouched by human activity or human oh, malfeasance. my word. I have one last question for you. I know that you gathered a lot of data on this trip. Uh, do you think once you have a chance to disseminate it all, do you think there's going to be one big discovery, one aha moment? Well, we uh, the, the beer bottle is a big one because, <laughs> <laughs> because it, it tells the story of how we have got to uh, stop polluting the ocean. Yes. Uh, there, there was a prior discovery made a, a few years ago by Professor Alan Jameson, I believe he He's now at the University of Western Australia. He's a deep sea biologist. He's one of the world's authorities on Hadal, or the deepest uh, biota that lives in the ocean. And he discovered Eurythines plasticus, <laughs> which is a species of amphipod uh, that already has plastic uh, entrained mm -hmm. in its tissues. Uh, so this, this side story of, uh, well, that's not a side story about uh, the effect of pollution uh, on uh, on the oceans is huge, but we we saw some amazing evidence of the collision of two plates uh, because that's what a trench is. A trench right. is where one tectonic plate is diving uh, into right. the earth beneath another, and uh, oftentimes there's especially at the Mariana Trench, which is so old. Uh, so the, the crust coming into the trench is among the oldest seafloor on the planet. Uh, and the, it, it comes in and dives into the Mariana Trench at a very steep angle. So that's why the trench is so deep. 
materials is, is, is scraped off as that happens. And we saw amazing evidence of that big, huge angular blocks and maybe a new species of bacteria. We'll have to let the, uh, uh, oh, uh, and hydroids, these little worms that were sticking out of the rocks. We'll let the biologists work on that. Dr. Wright, I could do five more podcasts with you. Everything is so fascinating. Uh, where can our young minds out there who want to follow in your footsteps? Is there a website? Is there a Twitter handle? Do you have any publications out? If you can give them uh, uh, all the information, they would love it. Oh, thank you for, for asking. There is a, a beautiful website that uh, Victoria Phillips, uh, our uh, marketing uh, specialist, put together along with our Story Maps team. The address is mappingthedeep-story.hub.arcgis.com. Okay. And that is the site that is all about this recent expedition. And there's a lot of uh, background information uh, on me and on uh, Challenger Deep and, and how you map the ocean in different ways. Uh, you can also find me on social media, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, uh, other Facebook. It's I, I have the same handle. It's at Deep Sea Dawn, all one word. And, and then I also have uh, another site uh, because Part of my uh, work is with Oregon State University as well. So you can go to dusk, D-U-S-K dot G-E-O dot O-R-S-T dot E-D-U. And that's where uh, all of my papers live. That is wonderful. Oh my gosh, it has been such a pleasure uh, to have you on our podcast here today. I thank you so much. And maybe we can touch base again sometime in the future with some other major accomplishment. It was so nice having you here, Dr. Wright. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Phil. I really enjoyed it. When the tropics heat up, you can stay cool. Because the chief works right here. Seven's chief meteorologist, Phil Farrow. He's been doing this for nearly 30 years. As soon as we get information, we bring it to you instantly. Wilma, Katrina, Irma. He guided us safely through them all. That guy never sleeps, but that's so you can sleep easier. And now, a Phil fact. CoreLogic, a research firm, predicts total losses from Hurricane Ian will be between $28 billion and $48 billion. The costliest hurricane to impact the U.S. was Katrina in 2005 with $160 billion in damages. In our next episode, many say the cone of concern is difficult to understand. Others contend the message is not conveyed correctly. It may not be the cone. I mean, it, it could still involve it. It may involve a redesign of a cone in some way, but we really want to look at more than just a track uncertainty product, which is all the cone is. We want to show all of the, the hazards associated with hurricanes. Meteorologist Jackson Dill looks into the matter. That's on our next issue, which drops October 18th. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion, please send us an email at wxpodcast at wsbn.com. Thank you for joining us. This podcast is produced by the Seven Weather Team. Original music by Chris Crane, with technical support by Stephen Sejas. Thank you for listening to Weather or Not.